I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. He's unpredictable. He's relentless. He's fearless. He's smart. He's a jerk. Oh, man, what a jerk. How would you describe Kirk Minahan? Combustible. Unpredictable. Fantasy. Obnoxious. Selfish. Polarizing. Enough about me. Let's get to the show. It's Kirk Minahan's Enough About Me. Have a chance to talk to Antoine Walker, former Celtic player. I'd say sort of a mixed legacy left as a player in Boston. You know, played, uh, had some fans, had some detractors, which I totally understood. He would drive you crazy as a player sometimes. You'd watch these games where he'd shoot 17 friggin' three-pointers, and you would say, what is going on here? Uh, and obviously his post-career is more interesting, I think, than his playing career. And he's, and he's been pretty open about it. Lost all his money, made some bad investments, did not handle his money well. We talk about that. We talk about his time with the Celtics. We talk about Patino, his relationship today with Paul Pierce, Larry Bird, Kobe Bryant, and a lot about his finances. I didn't quite crack Antoine on this. We didn't quite make that connection I make sometimes. Uh, I think it was a pretty good conversation. Not great, I'll be honest. Pretty good, not great with Antoine Walker. All right, so I just actually read through this Players' Tribune uh, story that you wrote that got published today, which is we're taping this on Tuesday. It'll run on Thursday, Antoine. The first question, okay. the first question I got to ask is, how does somebody spend eight hundred thousand dollars on an indoor pool? Where does <laughs> where, where is it? I, I mean, I mean, I mean that like I'm fa- I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I guess the answer is you can spend as much money as you want, right? But how, what what is that process like? Well, I think it's uh, obviously it's my first time building a home. Right um, at that time, so um, one I could have got gotten by the by the builders at, right. at that point, but at the same time, but no, um, I come from a very large family. I'm the oldest of six. Uh, um, something that we we didn't grow up in a neighborhood where we had swimming pools, uh, mm-hmm. fire fire hydrants. So uh, it was like the big icing on the cake uh, to be able to have a pool and to have an indoor pool. So um, it was something that we um, really enjoyed. To, to have it because it was something that you never really seen, especially as a kid. We never really seen swimming pools. It's you know, you know it's wild. I, you know, and you might agree or disagree, but isn't a big part of it if you had grown up, let's just say middle class or even upper middle class. My guess is, and I could be wrong. You can correct me. You probably wouldn't have run into the troubles that you ran into as a player. I mean, is that is that fair to say or no? Well, I think obviously I come from humble beginnings. I right. think that does play. I think that does play a particular part in it. I think obviously the way you're brought up and raised, I think with me not having a lot, uh, when I got an opportunity to make some money and obviously making millions, I want to do a lot of things. One, you want to help your family out. You want to help your friends out. And then you create this lifestyle for yourself. Mm -hmm. You want a lot of expensive things because you were never able to have those things. So I think definitely um, your upbringing and and how you're breathing. Sometimes I was come from a single-parent home. I didn't come from a two-parent home. Right. so a lot of things, a lot of things that plays a part in it too. Obviously, I think um, so. The, the groundwork and, and the lack of education aspect of it is not there. 
You know, we'll, I'm, I'm going to get back to the money stuff in, in a second. That's right. The Players' Tribune story is really good. We'll, we'll tweet out. We'll definitely talk about that later. I want to talk about some of the Celtics stuff. So you go to Kentucky. You play for Patino. You have a great run there. You come to the Celtics. It's sort of an odd time. What is your memories, your experiences of it early on, particularly that ML Carr year, which is obviously, look back now, is kind of a, a disastrous season. What, a 15-win season? Yeah, my first year, it was it was not a disastrous for me. I think for the team and the organization, yeah, because obviously they, they're used to being so good and, and being on top. But for me, it was a great learning experience. Uh, and Mel did just t- such a terrific job of coaching me and putting me in a position to grow. Um, he brought me along slowly, uh, turned me loose, you know, the last 25, 30 games of the season while I was able to blossom into a, a very good player and end up having – you know, actually good numbers my rookie year. But it was a learning experience. Obviously, the biggest thing for me just winning a national championship was just losing. Right. Um, you know, right. losing as much as I did. I, I never did that. And, and learning how, as a rookie, to continue to try to develop and don't worry about the wins and losses, I think that was the toughest part for me. But um, the way ML, you know, grew me and helped me was, was unbelievable. Did you know that you were playing on a team? Like, do you know that the team's tanking when you're on the team at that point? Do you sense – that the coach is trying to lose games to try and get that that the most ping pong balls, or is that something that's even going on in your mind? Um, no, I mean I had I had an inkling that hey we're going to be good next year because we're going to get some you know we're going to be able to get some uh, good picks, but um, I just stayed focused. I was I was just stay focused on playing. I didn't really worry about that. Um, I was enjoying the game. It was a learning experience for me. Um, so I just kept working. Did you, and, you know, every day just just continue to work to get better? Did you want Rick Pitino to be the coach of the Celtics? How was your relationship with him in Kentucky, and how was it when he first got here? Um, I definitely wanted him. Um, our relationship was great. Um, you know, obviously I learned a lot from Coach. He taught me how to play, taught me how to work hard. Um, so I was excited about him coming. Um, when he got to the to pros, I think he was a little impatient. Um, I think you go from a situation where you're winning 75 80% of your games to a situation where you got to rebuild. If you really look at his track record and the players that were there, he didn't give us a chance to develop. You know, he made a great pick. He picks Chauncey Billups and Ron Mercer um, the next year when the year he gets in, but he trades Chauncey Billups at all star break. Um, you know, so he didn't allow he didn't allow us to grow as a group. You know, I probably played with thirty different guys <laughs> over two and a half year in a two and a half year span. So I think coaches got a little impatient. And that, that won him. I think, you know, Coach is a winner. He likes to win. He wants to win at a very high level. Um, and he just got a little impatient. But he made some great draft picks. you got to remember he drafted Paul, Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce, sure. Yeah, you got Paul at 10. I mean, Ron Mercer was a pretty good pro. Um, so he discovered some guys. Bruce Bourne, mm-hmm. been a, a NBA champion, one of the best defensive players in the league. So, yeah, I played with some different guys. He just didn't give us a chance to develop. Isn't that wild, though, when you think about it? Like, Billups, I think, is a borderline Hall of Famer. He was the third pick in the draft, and Patino traded him after 40 games. I mean, that's, that is – were you guys sitting around at the locker room while this, all this stuff is going on and saying, like, you know, what the hell is going on here? Was there that feeling? Yeah, because you don't know what's to the madness. And, you know, and, and obviously, Coach at that time was wearing two hats that are very difficult to do. He was the head coach and the GM, which is very difficult to do. It's a tough task. Um but like I said, I think I think winning and losing really frustrated coach. He wanted to win right away. He wanted to implement his style. We tried to press, and it's very difficult to press in, at the pro level. Um, and he wanted to play that way. So it just didn't mix. So I think that's why you think he, he removed himself. But the good thing about it is that he kept you know Jim O'Brien with us, a guy that we all knew and, and understood. So it was easy transition for us, and that's why we was able to make a couple playoff appearances. 
Yeah, right. So you transition to O'Brien, and you guys have that really good run, obviously, in 2 with you and Pierce and Anderson and Rodgers and, you know, really close to the finals. And that year kind of, from a Celtics fan perspective, came out of nowhere. But you got, did you feel like you guys were getting closer and closer to that? I thought we was right there. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, we lacked a little bit in the point guard position. Right. Uh, called Kenny. We had Kenny at a, kind of the downsides of his career. Yep. Um, I think I think if you look at it, we wasn't overly big as far as size. We didn't have a traditional center. Um, but we played great defense. We, we were stingy defensively. We were the team that got out to you on the defensive end and uh, made you work. And I think that was our calling card. Did you did, – at that point – uh, did you feel like it was your team? Did you feel like it was starting to transition to Pierce's team? Did you feel that happening? Was that an issue for you or not an issue? No, I think me and Paul had a great relationship. I think we did a terrific job of feeding off each other. I thought me and Paul, uh, I know Paul was a better scorer than me. I was a more all, better all-around player than Paul, so we kind of both understood that. I was more of a point-forward type of guy where he was a guy that could get you 15, 20 and a quarter. He can go for 40 at any moment, so – we kind of piggybacked off that, and I, I accepted that role. I think sometimes people look at, um, you know, scoring as the leader. I was the leader of the team, but I did it in different facets. I was very vocal. Um, I was a guy that understood the game. I had a very high IQ for the game, and I knew that Paul was a better offensive player than me, and I wanted him to be able to do his thing and, and be the leader of the, of the team in scoring. And I think – at one point, for I think a couple of years, we were one of the best dynamic duels scoring in basketball. I still was getting 20 points a night. That was plenty for me. Yeah. When, so when does it start to go wrong? I mean, when do you start realizing that, you know, this isn't going to be exactly what you thought it was going to be with the Celtics? When did you start thinking, you know, this might not be uh, ideal? Um, I didn't. I mean, we go to the East Coast Finals. We play right. the Jersey Nets again. We get swept. Um, I felt like we was a point guard away. Um, that summer, they drafted Marcus Banks which I thought was good. We had some good young talent uh, on our team. So we, we were right there, um, I thought. I thought we were right there. I think we still could, could have beaten, you know, the New Jersey Nets, which was the best team in the Eastern Conference at that time. But Danny Ainge came in. I mean, he came in with a different vision, uh, a different thought for the team. Um, I wasn't necessarily – and that's, and, that's, and that's typical. This happens in this league. Some GMs are not fans of their superstars. And I don't think, you know, Danny came in and he was a big fan of mine. Um, whether he liked my game or not, um, he, he decided to go in a different direction. And I understood and I respected that. You did, even at the time, you, you even at that time? Because you're a relatively young guy at that point. You've had a lot of success. Oh, no, no. I think we had, we had verbal. We went, right. we went at it verbally. No, no. Definitely didn't understand at that time. I mean, I've been there seven years. Was, yeah. You know, Boston's been my home. I mean, the, the fans were great. Uh, people treated me real well. The organization treated me real well. Uh, we had just kind of new ownership group. Um, um, the new ownership group came in. Mm-hmm. Um, they embraced me, so of course. But they brought in their guy, Danny Ainge, who they wanted to run the team. And you got to respect that. At that time, no, I did not understand it. Uh, we had a verbal altercation, but those things happened because obviously in 2005, Danny Ainge traded for me. Back. He, he brought you back. But what was what was the example of like what what, what was the verbal altercation about? What what was exchanged? Well, I, I felt like, you know, you wait till the first game. That wasn't what was told to me. I was told that I was going to be a part of, of the process of us continuing trying to get a title, um, and it didn't pan out that way. But I understand it's a business aspect, and I got traded right before the first game of the season. Right. Um, you know, so that makes it difficult when you go through training camp and you focus on this team and you focus on, um, you know, 
of the upcoming season, and then right before the first game of the season, you get traded. So that's always very difficult. What is your relationship like with the Celtics today, with Grossbeck, with Danny Ainge? Is there one? Is there not one? Um, when the front office has been great. I've had, uh, over the last couple of years, I've uh, met with them, and um, obviously um, Danny controls the basketball aspect of it. I've tried a couple of times to get back within the organization. Um, I wouldn't say I put 110% effort into it. I've played around with it a little bit. Um, but, you know, Danny's done a terrific job. He's won a uh, title there. He's done a terrific job with the cap, with the draft picks and those things. So the ownership has total confidence in him. They just gave him extension. So I'm just not Danny's guy. I'm not one of his guys. And in this league, you got to be you got to be somebody's guy for them to, to t- take you in. If you see most of the guys bring in their guys that mm-hmm. they feel comfortable with. Um, so I, I, I respect that uh, and everything. But the Celtics have been great to me. Anytime I want to come back and go to a game, um, they have opened me with open arms. I mean, everything has been great. If I need their help and assistance with anything, they're always there to help me. But as me, as far as working with the team of, of that nature, that probably would not happen. How about Patino? You have a good relationship with him still? Oh, yeah. You have a great relationship with Coach. Uh, Coach has been very big to me and through my trials and tribulations. Um, just one, just being a friend, um, being helpful, um, giving me great advice, uh, giving me anything that I need. So he's been great for me. Um, we're actually going in August. We're having a 96 uh, championship reunion. Coach P's putting it on for all the guys. So I'm looking forward to that um, going in August and being with all the guys and coaches here. So you, have, you know you have this career. You have a long, you know, long career, longer than some people even think. Obviously, you win a title with Miami. You make over a hundred million dollars, and you know you kind of fade out. And we're not, you know, we be checking on you once in a while. Then we see that you're broke, that you have no money. And we do what our natural reaction always is, Antoine. We're looking at Twitter or we read a paper. My first reaction is, how the fuck does a guy who makes $100 million lose $100 million? It's easy for me to say, right, because I never had $100 million. For you, though, I mean, it looks like, you know, obviously I read about it before. I watched the 30 for 30. I read the Players' Tribune thing today. It's not as simple as somebody just blowing a shitload of money at once. It's a process, right? It's hard to lose $100 million. Or is it easy to do it? Well, I think it's a combination of things. And I think if you follow me and you follow me over the last couple of years, right. um, I'm really trying to, you know, be a learning example for a lot of yeah. young guys coming into the league. I think, first of all, you got to look at your own self. And I looked at my own situation. I think, you know, one, let's start with $100 million. You don't make $100 million. It's right. only after taxes. It's $50 million. And $50 million is still a lot of money. So at the end of the day, you look at it that way. And then, obviously, you, you create your own lifestyle. I had, I had a very expensive lifestyle. Well, give, 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 well, give me an example. So let's say you go on a road trip uh, with the Celtics. Well, no, it's not, that's not, no? That's no? Not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you out. Go ahead. Let me finish. You go to the, it's not a, first of all, you, you create your own lifestyle. Okay. So that's, that's, that's first and foremost. And obviously you're going to do that. And that's me personally. And then obviously you got family and you got friends. So, sure. Um, like I said, I'm the oldest of six. I got two kids. I mm-hmm. take care of my family and friends. Um, you got those situations that you created. Well, my, my 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 situation came from real estate. I was in the real estate game. I put my I was the personal guarantor of a real estate company called Walker Ventures. Right. And we basically owned a bunch of property in the city of Chicago. Um, in 2007-2008, it's people and people really know where other people invest in that thing. It was a recession that hit. Mm-hmm. So when the when the recession hit, I got caught in the recession. Now, did I make a mistake in there? Yes, I never should have put my personal financial portfolio up and been the personal guarantor. A huge mistake that I made. So I was responsible for the debt that was left. The debt was 18, well, close to the $20 million that I had to pay back. 
So that ultimately forced me to file bankruptcy. So it wasn't the fact that I blew $100 million. I had the money to pay to get out of bankruptcy. Right. It just wasn't a situation that happened. So I think a lot of times when people read into the articles, and I did, and I never was part of the 30 for 30. Uh, no, the, oh, the, the, the the broke documentary? You weren't in the broke documentary? I was never a part of that. Okay. I did an I, interview with it is being, that's, that's, Oh, that's, that's what, right. That's why. what I'm thinking of. Right, right, right. You're right. I right. apologize. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, not yeah. that. I'm right. not, nothing wrong with that. But yeah. that's, that's the problem. That's why sometimes, that's why I filmed my own documentary. That's why mm-hmm. I'm being a very, I'm an advocate now and going out. And I've got a tremendous platform with Morgan Stanley where I go out and I educate young collegiate athletes and young pros about finances and the mistakes that I made. So that's the reason why I'm doing it because it needs to be told. Everybody's story is different. And every, I think everybody needs to understand it. So it, it's okay. It's, that's what happens in life when people do that. That's why I've been so active and, and up for up and, and trying to be transparent and sharing my story with a lot of people because of that. Because you want to have that opportunity to share with them so they can understand. And it happens in so many different ways. But yes, my aggressive spending and my spending habits was a part of me, Fallon. Um, me taking care of people, not saying no, um, was a part of that. Um, I gambled. I gambled. I lost money gambling. I didn't lose a significant amount of money that caused me to count bankruptcy, but I still had a fetish. That's a bad fetish to have, to be able to go out and gamble. So all those things play a part, and you're losing that. So um, so when you would go to, but let's just say the gambling part. We'll focus on this stuff in a second. But the gambling part, you talk about the $800,000 uh, in here. What would be a night for you, at, say, if you would go to Foxwoods or something, or Vegas? What, what, um, what, 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 what $10,000 $10 or $15,000. That was... That's the thing about article. It was one bad day. It was over a six-week period that right. I lost eight hundred thousand. I'm not a big gambler. I would go in and lose. Well, that's, a, that's that's a lot of money though. That's a shitload of money though. Over a six-week period of time. That's why I'm highlighting. That's why I'm bringing right. it out. That's right. Why I'm telling them. Right. 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 It got out of control over a six-week period of time. So that's why I chose to share that aspect of it. And it came out. It happened at the wrong time. It happened at the time that I actually was going through um, the real estate and the bankruptcy and that whole thing. So it was all tied at the same time. But obviously, through the media and press, and you, everybody wants to think it's more just that the, the gambling takes more precedent than how you actually really lost your money. So, I don't want to disregard that, but it was a very small part in my life and and, and me losing money. And and you say in the story, the story, the Players Tribune story says that somebody was, you know, one of your people that that you work with in the real estate stuff was actually stealing from you as well, though, right? It was still. I mean, it was mismanaging the company. Um, he couldn't control the the, the recession. But he did mismanage the company. Um, they put me in a couple of bad positions that, as a professional athlete, as a person that doesn't help my character, that doesn't tell the type of person that I am. So, of course, there was a couple of situations that I didn't like. But I don't totally blame him for the, um, the market going bad and, and for the recession happening. Obviously, his Fortune 500 company took effect to that. It wasn't just Antoine Walker. So I don't just blame that. But I do believe that he mismanaged and held some situations that he could have handled a lot better. Um, but that's my fault for letting somebody else be in control of a situation that I got my money on. But this is, but I mean, this is the Players Tribune that says by Antoine Walker, and it says here that uh, if your friend is mismanaging properties and stealing from you, I mean, you wrote that, right? So you feel like this guy was actually stealing from you, or no? I felt like he stole in the smaller situations. The bigger yeah. point of it. Good. Yeah, I felt like he mismanaged. He stole in certain situations. I do feel like that, and that's why I wrote it that way because I do feel like he did that. But he also, but he also didn't pay a card in the recession. So it's, it's two things. I'm not defending him. I, I'm right. really pissed at how I handled it. So I, I would never necessarily defend him. I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm the one that took. I'm the one that has to defend myself. So at the end of the day, he did play a part in that. 
I did put faith and hope that he could run it. So that's my own personal fault. It, you know, to doing that and putting somebody else in control. Was there was there a part you know where you, where you realized that you you know you were bankrupt, you had no money, you had lost all this money? Was humi- was humiliation? Uh, was that hard? You know, guys guys you had grown up with and played with, like Pierce and these other guys, probably still had a lot of money. Were you embarrassed? Were you right away able to to confront that, or was it a process for you to get to the point where you could be open and talk about it? Um, I would try. It's a process with, with my family and friends, people that I'm taking care of. I have two kids that at that time, mm-hmm. they're teenagers. They're they're going through this process. They have to go to school. Their father is a, a professional athlete, and and obviously we know with social media and internet and all those things going on. So you definitely want to make sure they're okay. I'm fine. I come from humble beginnings, so they're not embarrassed by anything. I come from humble beginnings, and I think we use the word broke in the wrong content. What happened? We had to file bankruptcy. I think obviously broke is a good term to use, but when you go through a bankruptcy, you have an opportunity to keep a lot of things, but I have to pick out things that I'm going to be able to continue to afford. So I think everybody needs to understand the word uh, bankruptcy. I chose Chapter 7 because I did not want to be in debt the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I would rather bottom out. I felt like I was a young guy. I thought I would be able to earn money again the rest of my life, and I didn't want to be in debt the rest of my life. So I took the best possible strategy for me to have a quality life. And that's the reason why I chose Chapter Seven bankruptcy, and to be able to to be able to live a comfortable life after that. I did not want to be in debt and have 15, 20 companies and banks and those things still on the money for the rest of my life. So I felt like I did the right thing to bottom out, and and obviously I feel like I got I can read, I can write, I, I I can do a lot of different things in life besides play basketball and earn money. So I felt like I had a better chance at having a quality of life that way. Was there was there a, a, an adult, a older figure in your life when you're in your twenties? You know, a, a guy in his forties or, or a woman in her forties or fifties who could sit you down and say, maybe you shouldn't do this, maybe you shouldn't do that. Whether it was I don't know a Patino or a, whoever it was, was there somebody you feel like you could talk to, or did that person not exist as you were sort of diving into this? Because you know, at that age you're at twenty two, twenty three. That's so much money. If I was twenty two or twenty three and I had nobody to tell me, I would have no idea what to do with it. You know. Um, I wouldn't say that I had a financial advisor that had me in a pretty good potential financially. Yeah. Now, was I, was I stubborn and did I want to do things on my own without questioning? Did I listen all the time? Of course not. Um, could a friend call me that I had a close relationship with and it could probably be, it probably was the worst business deal, but I still wanted to help him out and I went against my financial advisor's um, thought process, yes. Um, my financial advisor did not want me to be the personal guarantee of this real estate company, but it was something that I wanted to do. So after me, I got well, I got power of attorney over my money. I can do what I want to do. So I was hard-headed, stubborn at times. Um, that also may cost me. You live and learn that. That's what the reason why you pay your financial advisor and business managers that type of money to make sure you're in a better position. So I was stubborn. I was young. Um, I was aggressive. I wanted. I wanted when I wanted something. I wanted it. Um, the biggest thing. And this is what I, what I try to teach young guys on is I never thought about um, being a 39 year old Antoine. Right. When I went to the league at 19, I never thought about being 39 year old Antoine, and I never thought about having money at 39. I always thought money would come in. I was young. I was athletic. I was playing ball. I was getting paychecks every first to 15. I never thought about having money at the end of my career. But at 40 years old, I didn't think that far ahead. I just lived in the moment, and I think that's what a lot of us do. When you make the type of money that I made, that's generational wealth. That's not just wealth for you. That's generational wealth for your kids, their kids. And I didn't think about that. And that's what I try to tell a lot of guys that come across a lot of money now is that, you know, you're making generational wealth. 
you know, it can go fast. You know, everything is hunky glory now, but you can have a sudden thing happen in life, an injury can happen. Anything can happen where the money can stop. So you got to make sure that you put your, put yourself in a position to have money the rest of your life. So that's what I didn't do. That was my biggest mistake. I didn't think about that. I was in decent financial position. I had the, the money to pay to get out of bankruptcy. So I was in decent financial position, but I still never thought about um, having generational wealth. Did that? Does are you? Do you ever get pissed off at yourself about that, or do you just it's something oh, you? Oh, without can, question. Yeah, without question, I beat I beat myself over the head. But you got to realize this happened in 2010. We're in 2016. So yeah, I've had I've had my time to to cope with that, and I had my moments where you know it was tough on me, and and you really want to you know look yourself in the mirror and just beat yourself up over it. But life goes on. I mean, so at some point I had to look myself in the mirror and move on from that. And feel blessed to have the opportunity to make that in the lifestyle that I gave myself, my family, for 13 odd years was was unbelievable. Something that we can never take back. But I, like I said, I come from humble beginnings, so I know how it feels not to have a lot. So I can I can balance it out. I have a good balance in my life. Is the is the stuff you write about this toward the end of the story? Uh, when you're on the road, L.A., Miami, wherever, you can't take ten or so guys to run with the Gucci and tell them to get whatever they want. Was that part of your? part of your uh, thing that you have an entourage of people and you would say, just, just go do whatever. Uh, I did have an entourage. Um, you did, but it was, I did have yeah. an guys, guys that I hung out with. Grew up with her. Yeah. Guys I grew up with, you know, I, I ran with about eight to 10 guys that I, that I grew up with. And in the summertime we traveled, we party, we did everything you possibly did. And it was times that we did go to the grocery store. It was times that we did go to the Louis Vuitton store. There were times that we did go to a clothing store and I shopped and we all shopped and we all bought things out the store. So there was numerous of times that happened. So I did have that 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 crew that, that I took care of throughout my NBA career. Was there part of you, though, that wanted to say these guys sometimes, like, just enough? Just, you know, th- th- there's a line here. We You know, I can't, I can't keep doing this, or was that not an issue? At that time, I didn't think that way. Right, um, right, right, right. Um, it kind of... It, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a code or something you live by. It was just kind of one of those days. I felt like I made it out the neighborhood. Um, we all grew up together. We all were trying to be athletes at some point or, or doing something. I made it. I wanted them to enjoy the fruits of the labor, too. Um, I felt like they were good people. And, and, and I, it was you know mainly my fault, not saying no and just taking them on a ride that I felt like I deserved to give them. You know, it's just some of those things you just feel like you like you're obligated to give them, but you're not obligated. But you just kind of feel that way. What are you up to today? What is what is your what are you, what are you doing right now, career wise? What's going on with you uh, in the last year or so? Um, I'm in my second year working with Morgan Stanley Global mm-hmm. Sports and Entertainment. I'm a consultant for them, so I work with the financial education department. So I travel around to different universities and speak about financial education. I, I'm very transparent. I share my story to the student athletes. Um, try to answer any questions that they have. We educate them on. Um, building their credit, uh, establish when they get money to save it, protect it, those type of things. Uh, we also do professional teams. So I've spoken to a numerous of football teams, basketball teams. We right now coming up, we got the NBA Summer League. Uh, we're about to show the documentary. I filmed the documentary uh, two and a half years ago that's about to come out publicly here over the next, hopefully over the next two months that the world's going to get a chance to see. We're showing it to the NBA rookies for the first time next week. Um, so I'm doing a ton of work with Morgan Stanley. Um, also got a book coming out, um, just, uh, an autobiography about my life, a book coming out as well, which hopefully is going to come out at the same time the doc comes out. 
And I also work for 120 Sports here in Chicago. Um, I'm the NBA analyst for 120 Sports in Chicago. Is there any party that wants to get in the coaching? You see these guys, your contemporaries, your peers, are all, or a lot of those guys are coaching out. Do you want to get back into the NBA or back into college basketball full-time? Are you happy where you are? Um, I'm happy where I am right now, but definitely would love to get into coaching. Um, obviously, basketball is my love. I love it. Uh, I'm a fan of the game. Uh, I'm a big student of the game. Um, I do, if the situation is right, um, I follow the coaching circuit. If I can get with a coach that, obviously, that I have a relationship with and we can work well together, I would love to. I look at a lot of the young young coaches in the league. I look at Teron Lou. I look at Earl Watson. I look at Derek Fisher. I look at Jason Kidd. So, ex-players and guys that I've played with get the opportunity to coach. So, it's definitely something that I think about. I'm 39, so I feel like i still got a window opportunity to definitely get into coaching. And how long have you been out of the NBA for? Uh, since 2000, technically since 2009. I retired officially. I won the D-League a couple years, 2012. Did you enjoy that experience, or was that not a good experience in the D-League? It was, it was a great experience. It was, it was okay. It yeah. Was a, it, was a very, it was a humbling experience, but it was great to be with those young, hungry guys that wanted to make it the hard work they put in. Um, it's bad travel. It's bad living. <laughs> so, but you don't get paid a lot of money. But the the guys, the work and effort that they put in to try to get to the NBA, um, is very humbling. And you feel blessed that you had the opportunity to make it a different route. And you try just try to share that experience. I will never take away those two years. I really enjoyed it. Um, Idaho Stampede were great to me. Randy Livingston was the coach. A guy that you know, a guy I played with. A guy we went against each other in high school and college, and been to have him coach me, so I really enjoyed that experience. You know, I thought of you in, when the Celtics won the title against the Lakers in, in 2008, and I wondered, you know, was there any part of you watching that that felt, I wouldn't say bitter, but sort of had mixed emotions watching that team and Pierce and Ainge win a title? That You were, you know, you were part of the mix for so long. Was there any part of you that, that, that felt mm-hmm. sort of mixed emotions about it or no? You know what? I was, I was super happy for Paul. Uh, at that time, me and Paul we still had a very good relationship. We were speaking on a consistent basis. I was so excited and happy for him because I got my title in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you would love – I always think about if me and Paul could have did it together, but both of us had to do it with other superstars. You know, I went and played with Shaq and D-Wade, and he went – you know, and obviously they brought in Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett. So we didn't, we wasn't able to do it together. Uh, but, you know, you, you were bitter about that. But I was happy for them. I was happy for the organization, I for the city of Boston. Um, I consider Boston my second home. Uh, people treat me real well there. The organization still treats me well. Um, so I have nothing but love for Boston, and you know, because Boston has done nothing but support and embrace me. Can I assume that you're not the, the way you phrase it that you're not talking to Pierce much now? I haven't talked to him not because we're like fighting. I just haven't, yeah. you know, phone numbers change. I just haven't. I haven't been in the NBA circuit. I haven't been in that circuit in, in a couple of years, so I haven't bumped into him. May see him in summer league, though. Usually, a lot of guys are in summer right. league. You know what's funny about the whole? Just to get back to the Patino thing, the, the perception around here is the minute they, that, that you guys didn't get that first pick, you didn't get Duncan, that it was going to be hard for Patino to succeed. I mean, that was always listen. That was always the perception around here is you were going to get the first pick and the second pick or the third pick. I mean, you could have potentially walked away with. Uh, Tim Duncan and Chauncey Billups in that draft, you know, instead of Billups and Ron Mercer. Oh, without question. I, I, and, I, and I know I said this earlier, I just think with Coach and, and me knowing Coach and knowing how, what type of competitor he is, Coach wants to win right away. And you know, like I know, and been around sports, you, when you get draft young talent, it takes time. 
you know, it's going to take some time to get guys to develop. And I think Coach kind of came in preaching that we were going to win right away. I think we won 15 games before, the year before. Then he come in and win 38. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was a tremendous jump. So, and then the next year, um, I think was the lockout year. Right. And we don't improve. And we don't improve. And then we go into the next season, and, you know, he, he couldn't take it no more. You know, he wanted to win. And he had changed the roster so much, it, probably, it was just tough to do. Instead of being packed and keeping three, four, five guys together, if you look at, you know, just look at, you know, if you look at San Antonio, Tony sure. Parker, Mono Ginola, and Tim Duncan, those guys have been together for 15-plus years. You look at, you know, you look at OKC, Westbrook, you know, Durant, you know, up to this point, Serge Ibaka before he got traded. Those guys have been together six, seven, eight years. You have to just take time to build winners. And I think at that time, Coach didn't have the patience for it. Then that's what really ran him out of Boston and kind of messed up the situation. But we could have got number one and got Tim Duncan, of course. Yeah. <laughs> the most the sky's the limit where you're going to end up. This is probably arguably the greatest power forward that will play the game. Did you enjoy your second time in Boston as much, maybe more than your first time around? I mean, it was it, it sort of came out of nowhere, and you guys had a pretty damn good run when you got traded uh, back here in 06, was it? 05, you know 06? It was, it was 05. Yeah. And I actually really, I really did enjoy that run. You know, Doc Rose was the coach. I thought he was a great offensive mind. the best offensive mind coach beside Don, Don Nelson I ever played for. Just put me in positions to, to score the basketball easy. Um, I thought we had a ton of talent. I thought we had two units. Uh, we had great young talent coming off the bench. Al Jefferson, Tony Allen, those guys coming off the bench was, was great. Uh, I thought me and Gary Payton brought great – me, Gary Payton, and Paul were great veteran leadership. I, I liked the core. I liked where we were going. Obviously, we underachieved when we got to the playoffs, but it was fun. It was my first division title uh, to be a part of. We won, I think we won 12 out of 13 games when I joined the team. We went on an unbelievable run. Um, it was great, and I actually thought I was coming back. I thought Danny was going to keep that team intact. Um, he chose to go a different direction. I was a free agent. Um, he wanted to go a different direction, so it happens. What's your what's – your, uh... What's your best Michael Jordan story? I mean, obviously you go way back with Jordan. When you first came in the league, you're working out with him. What's what's a Jordan story or two that stand out? Um, honestly, me being with Mike, my best story to be would honestly be the grind to watch him work at forty to get prepared to get back into the NBA. Um, to get that phone call um, after getting swept in the finals. I mean, after getting swept in the second round of playoffs, and him saying, "Hey, let's get back in the gym. I'm thinking about making a comeback." And just being a part of that process, him coming back to try to play at 40 was just unbelievable. The work ethic that he put in, the level that he was still able to play at at 40. I mean, this guy used to dominate the gym and the pick. And I'm not talking about the actual NBA games. I'm talking about pickup ball behind closed doors and what he was able to do and how he got his body back prepared and stuff of that nature. So those are the moments that I always remember with Mike that I always cherish. Uh, because he didn't have to pick up the phone and call me. He called me. I was a local guy here in Chicago. And to be a part of his process and to watch him work just made me that much of a better player. How about Red Auerbach? I mean, you you must have spent some, some time with him. He was uh, still around and still a factor, right? Man, I love Red. I'm, I'm one of the blessed players. When I first got with the Celtics, Red, you know, he was old, but he still had a knowledge of the game. He still knew what was going on. And I had my moments where I would sit down and, and talk with him. I got a great picture um, that I always share with people with me sitting down as a rookie and him smoking a cigar, blowing smoke in my face and just giving me, uh, uh, talking to me about the game. I mean, Red was tremendous and great to me. Uh, he welcomed me and opened up. 
everybody's feeling self-isolated. When I came in, I always tell people that I worked out for 20 minutes. And my meeting was Larry Bird, ML Carr, Dennis Johnson, Casey Jones, Red Allback, Tommy Heisen, <laughs> Bob Cozy. That's what my interview process was. That's the room I sat in with those guys at my table. You were the sixth pick in the draft, right? Is that right? The sixth pick? When I worked out for, yeah, when I worked out for the Celtics, I worked on the court for 20 minutes. Wait, so, I interviewed right. for another hour, 30 minutes. With that, those those well, what was, were the people who were sitting in the room. What was Bird's role in that? Bird was with the team. Right, no, no, yeah, yeah, right. That, that was the last year he was with them before Patino came in. But, but I mean, what role did he play in that process when he was talking to you for that for that hour? What, what, what did you observe and see? What was he asking you? What was his role in that 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 interview? Well, just saying about the passion for the game. Yeah. Um, do I want to win? You know, when you're in the room with those guys, that's number winners, guys that have played, dedicate themselves to the game, and 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 they understand the Boston tradition. I think it was more or less let me understand the Boston tradition, let me know you know what it's going to take to be a Celtic. And at that time, before that, at that point, before draft night, they were picking at nine. They didn't even really think they were going to be have a chance to get me, and they traded up to the sixth pick to get me. So, um, just a, a real special moment about being being a Celtic. Where where did you want to go when that when draft night started? What was your ideal spot? I'm not even lie to you. I, I could have went to the Vancouver Grizzlies. <laughs> you were, were, were going to be happy. <laughs> did you think? Did you did you think you were going to go higher? How many teams did you work out for before the draft? Um, I actually worked out from two to eleven, so nine teams. Yeah. So I had a, a, a wide range. Um, before I put my name in the draft, I was told that I wouldn't go no lower than eight. You yeah. Know? I don't think the lot. I don't think the lottery had been set then, but I was told I was going to top ten. I would just say that. So I, I knew I was going to go in the top ten. And it was a twenty-minute workout by far the shortest workout for any team, or was that no? <laughs> oh yeah, it was the shortest workout. It was like they they knew what they they knew what they had in me already, and, and that was it. And the interview process was, I guess, was more important than more so than me actually going to show my physical ability. That was was that uh, was that the was that the Sharif Abdurrahim draft or no? Is that wrong? Yeah, don't, don't he, mess up our draft. We got we got arguably one of the best drafts. Yeah, that Kobe was, uh, Kobe Bryant, I, right? <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, Allen Iverson went one. Oh, right, right, right. Two, right. Sharif, then Mulberry, Ray Allen, then me. That's a pretty good name. What, Samaki Walker? Am I making that up or no? Wrong no, draft? Samaki, Samaki was in it. John Wallace, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant. Uh, we were loaded. Kerry Kittles. That's right. You know, Kobe Bryant worked out for the Celtics as well. There's a there's a picture of Kobe Bryant working out with a Celtics shirt. You know, they ran it right before... Uh, Right before he retired. That's right. That's a loaded draft. So you went sixth in that draft, and you thought you were going to go. You were going to go in the top eight. That's interesting. So there was, huh? So you thought you were going to go. So when you leave, who tells you that that you're going to go no worse than the top eight? Who has that conversation? Patino, or is that an agent? Who tells you that? Well, at that time, um, I kind of went behind Coach back a little bit. I can always tell the story now. I went behind his back a little bit, and I called Sonny Vaccaro. You know Sonny Vaccaro? Sure, from Nike, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Sonny Vaccaro was with yeah. a, he was with Adidas he was with Adidas at the time. Right. He had switched over, so I called Sonny because I had played in um, I had got a relationship with Sonny. I say, Sonny, I'm thinking about going pro. Can you help me out? He was like, Okay, Antoine. He's like, Listen, I don't want to be a part of me to make you come out. But he was like, I'll make some pro calls for you. So he called me back and he was like, Hey, you could be a lottery pick. So after he told me that, I went to Coach Patino and talked to Coach, and Coach told me give him 24 hours. And Coach called all the NBA execs and told me, he told me, he didn't even tell me, he said, you're coming out. Oh, he, he said, said he didn't give me the option. He said, you're coming out. He didn't even give me the option. But, but do you think most coaches would do that or no? Is that unusual? Or 
Is, are most coaches going to say, listen, you, you got to go. The money's too good. You got to jump. Um, I think it was just starting to become a trend then. Yeah. I think uh, before that, I think because Kevin Garnett came out of high school. Uh, I'm trying to think somebody else had just came out. So guys were starting to come out early. Right. Um, on a more consistent basis. So I think, yeah, and, and coach is a coach in the NBA. I think he obviously understands the future. One thing about a college coach, he knows what situation you're in. I had just had a young child my senior year. So you got to look at those situations too. And and we were, I was preseason. Me, Tim Duncan, were going to be the number one to two player in the country and Keith Van Horn. It was like us three. Mm-hmm. We're going to be the number, you know, top three players in the country. We were going to be ranked number one in the country. And you know they went to the championship game, the national championship game. That year. So Utah. We back to back. You're right. We were the right. one back to back titles. Right. I'll tell you, that, that, <laughs> that, that 96 team you're talking about, I don't know if you're going to see a college basketball team that loaded again, the way, the way it works out right now. I mean, that team was stacked. Your, your Kentucky yeah, we, team, the one that was that was a pretty deep team. I'm gonna tell you how stacked we were. Our practices were harder than the game, and this is that's no lie. A lot of a lot of people may think I'm lying, but our practices were harder than the game. Was Patino uh, his coaching style complete hard ass, laid back? I mean, what was was it was it sometimes hard ass, sometimes laid back, or or foot on the throat all the time? Um. He was tough all the time. Did he figure? Uh, did he fi- Did he figure out in the NBA that he couldn't do that, or was that an issue too? It was tough because uh, he wanted to press. He wanted to uh, play a tempo style. You know, right. it's tough to get pros to t- pros to press. Yeah. Um, I think that was a big transition for him, establishing that and and not being able to t- kind of establish his style of play. Um, but in college, he was very tough, very difficult, a disciplinarian. Um, he had very little room to make mistakes. Um, on and off the court, he ran a very tight ship. Um, I never worked that hard in my life, um, as far as just getting in shape. I mean, I mean, it was constant, um, working out all the time. So, um, and the college rules were much more lenient back then than now. They're a little bit more stricter, but you could be in the gym all day back then. Right. So, so the, it was very difficult. So the book comes out, you think, in a couple months. The documentary will be out in a couple months as well. Uh, we'll look forward to those. Uh, we'll keep an eye on you there. And you're on Twitter at, what is it, Walker? Your Twitter handle is? Uh, it's probably by my last name. Yeah, Walker, Walker Antoine 8, is no, that right? Yeah, yeah. You got the blue check, then that's me. Yeah, I know. I, I, I know. You're, you're, you're legit. You got, the, uh, you got the blue check mark. I was impressed when I saw that. Congratulations. Well, the problem was when I wanted to go get on social media, everybody was using my name. Oh, it was all fake accounts? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fake, yeah. fake accounts. So <laughs> right. I, tech, I technically couldn't use my real name, so I had to actually – and when I, when I set up Facebook, I actually, actually had to call Facebook people, the actual company, and they had to delete the other stuff to put my real Facebook page up. That was, <laughs> that was crazy. Like, it was – you know, so many people use people's names, and a lot of people, you know, so and, and act like they use, so um, – they put the little blue check to kind of verify and make sure that people know it's you. I got that. So the documentary comes out. The book comes out. The last question I got to ask is you talk about the money and, yes. all, the, and all the temptations. When you're a young guy, uh, the women, the NBA, it has to be one of the great temptations of all time, right? <laughs> oh, without question. It I plays mean, a big part, too, and it's funny you say that. Yeah, I mean, through my NBA career, I dated a girl for 10 years, and, and you, you get in one of those situations. That plays a part in in. in your money and where your money goes. Um, one, the temptation, the one, the money you spent on it. I, I had, to, uh, I was in a situation where I took care of my girl. She didn't work. 
you know, for the extent of our relationship. At the day before a year and a half, I told her I didn't want to work. And my basic reason for that was that I wanted her to be able to come when I wanted her to come. She was living in New York. We were in a long-distance relationship, and that's how he wanted it. So every, every guy is different. Some guys get married very young, and we never talk about this, but divorce sometimes kills a lot of that, that fortune, too. Sure. You lose half of it, right? Right away. Yeah, you can lose half of it. So we all, sometimes we pick bad women and get in bad situations. And a lot of it's the man's fault because, like you just said, the temptation is so great. And you're not ready to be married. And, and you go out and get married, and then they decide to leave you, and they get half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 you know, that plays a big part. But to answer your question, yeah, the women is a very it's a tough temptation. I mean, I mean you travel in 30 cities. I mean, you you travel the world. You 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 know, with the NBA is a little different. You get the night. Sometimes you get the night before off. You go out. You hang out. So, you know, you can have a little social life while you play in the NBA. Just yeah. a little. <laughs> well, Antoine Walker, we look forward to the documentary. We'll see the book. We're glad things are going better for you. And the Players' Tribune, uh, you know, like I said, it came out on Tuesday. We're t- this, will be, this will be out on Thursday, the podcast made, called Letter to My Younger Self, Antoine Walker, Players' Tribune. Antoine, I really appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for having me. I Thank you, Antoine. It, All right. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Enough About Me podcast. If you want more podcasts like this with guests like Artie Lang, where, who else is going to have Artie Lang and fucking Bob Ryan on the same podcast or David Portnoy and uh, John Tomasi. If you want to listen to podcasts like this, you go to iTunes, Stitcher, you go to WEI.com, you go to the mobile app. When you go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. That's going to help us out a lot. If you want more of these, leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe. Make sure you do that for me. That is a command. Now do it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.